I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dig- dig- dignity of man. Uh, the dignity of humanity. Whoa, it's up for grabs these days. The United States is not the only modern industrialized country experiencing major political upheaval in 2019. The mainstream media in America does tend to be parochial in its decisions about what to cover, so it's rare indeed that we get news from Europe. <laughs> Unless, of course, it's a calamity. Sure, we do hear about the awful mess that Brexit is. But what about the rest of the European Union? What is happening with the traditional definitions of European left and right? How far right is the right? And how threatening might that be to the people of Europe and the world? And the left, always fairly predictable in its working class, fairly doctrinaire versions of Marxism, is that still the same? Is the center-left really still the dominant political force? And what has been the center-left? <laughs> Way to the left of the so-called left in the United States. Just as very few of us on this side of the Atlantic expected Brexit and Trump to actually win, here we are. And with late May European Union elections coming up, how worried should anti-fascists be? The mainstream news operations <laughs> won't cover this, but that's why we're here. A returning guest, Colin Hellenin, is a columnist for Foreign Policy and Focus, and the article we'll discuss today is titled, As EU Elections Approach, Europe Confronts a Cliff. That's certainly an unsettling picture. Well, thanks for being with us, Con. And Oh, thanks for having me. My sense is that elections in Europe, as compared to those in America, are less long, drawn-out, super-expensive dramas. Americans are probably not aware that there's a European Union parliamentary election coming up May 23rd through 26th. Now, I'm already impressed that they have more than one day to vote. That's a good most thing. Of them, most European countries vote uh, on weekends. Ah. And they are shocked that the idea that you would vote on a Tuesday in the middle of a work week. Oh, I mean, most no. Europeans' reaction to that is, oh, you don't want people to vote? Right. <laughs> I think that's what it comes from, and I think that's why it's still there. It should be a national holiday. Well, you write that polls show center-right and center-left parties, which have dominated the EU Parliament since its first convened in 1979, will lose their majority. What has been the political sense center since the EU's founding 40 years ago? What is going on such that the formerly solid bases are starting to crack and why are established parties being pushed to, as you say, the political margins? There's a lot of questions there. Well, part of this goes back a bit um, to uh, 1980, which is when uh, the conservatives uh, under Margaret Thatcher were, were elected uh, to the British government and then Ronald Reagan uh, in the United States in 1981. 
And what happened was that the election of those two people represented a shift away from what had emerged out of the Second World War, uh, the idea of um, big government, um, the idea that government provided services, that uh, government uh, built infrastructure. Um, it, it, in, the, in Europe, it was very much social democracy. It was never really social democracy in the United States, but it was certainly uh, big government in the United States. And this was a turn away from that. And it, uh, the government became the enemy. Uh, what was Reagan's line? Right. You know, the, the government is, yeah. is not, not the, solution, the solution, it's the problem. It's the problem. Right. Um, so a, a regime came in which um, cut government, uh, cut what government provided in terms of, you know, subsidies and infrastructure and health and welfare and this kind of thing. Taxes were cut. Um, on the wealthy, this is idea was it would, you know, stimulate the growth of the economy, and large sections of uh, what were formerly publicly owned were privatized. Uh-huh. Now that what that resulted in, it was a reflection of of, of globalization. It was a reflection of the fact that um, capital had sort of broken its national boundaries and gone global, and so it went to low wage. Countries where unions were weak or are are absent or or else under dictatorship, so couldn't really uh, do anything about it, and um, it resulted in an enormous amount of wealth being generated. But it was wealth that 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 was not reflected for the majority of citizens in countries like the United States or in Europe, and that was a, that was the kind of structure of of economics and politics throughout the 1980s. And in the 1990s, when the Social Democrats, which I call the center-left, uh, came back into power, um, New Labour under Tony Blair in Britain, um, Social Democ- the Social Democrats in, um, in Germany, the Socialist Party in Greece, the Socialist Party in Spain, etc. What they did was they sort of cut a deal and we think of it now as sort of neoliberalism, mm. which is that they accepted the principle um, that capitalism was a good thing and that uh, freeing capitalism of, of, of bonds uh, was, was going to work in the long run. Um, and so they also privatized things. They, um, they, they cut, uh, they weakened unions by making it easier to hire and fire people, um, they just they generally went along with the sort of neoconservatism of the 1980s, and it became sort of neoliberalism of the 1990s. That's the crisis that we currently find ourselves in now, because the effect of that um, has been to enormously increase economic disparity. Uh, all over Europe. Certainly we see this in the United States. Um, and it's also, it severely weakened all of the kind of, you know, the pluses that came out of social democracy, particularly in Europe. Free health, you know, uh, subsidized transportation, subsidized housing, um, subsidized education, etc. All of those things started to be dismantled to one extent or the other. This is the crisis that we find ourselves in 
right now because the center left mm-hmm. has been associated with policies that have alienated its traditional base uh, among poor people and working class people. Mm. And so what's happened is, is that particularly in Europe, and I think the same thing in the United States, if you take a look at what the policies of the Clinton administration were in the 1990s, what's happened is that um, people find it difficult time deciding, Figuring out what's what's the difference between the center right and the center left—it all looks the same to them. And in a certain extent, it is pretty much the same. Yeah. That's the crisis that you you have in Europe right now. And there's always been a coalition between the center right and the center and the center left that has dominated the European Union since its formation. Um, that is going to change after these elections. They. That particular block, um, according to all the polls, mm-hmm. uh, is going to lose its majority. And Yikes. what will happen is there were a lar- there are a large number of what they call populist and Eurosceptic parties uh-huh. uh, that are are going to be elected. Though one needs to be very careful in thinking that those are all the same animal because they're not. Well, certainly uh, under the definition of populist, who knows what the heck that means? Is here in America, right-wing populist, left-wing exactly, and I think it obscures more uh, than it reveals. In in the case of, for instance, Europe, Eurosceptic and populist embraces parties like the Alternative for Germany, which uh-huh. is really a Nazi party. I mean, they they call you know they're, they're sort of called neo-fascists. I don't know why they call their neo that look pretty much like the old yeah. variety of that. Um, the League uh, in, uh, in um, uh, Italy, um, with, its, with its ties and its sort of worship of Mussolini, mm-hmm. um, they lumped them in with Syriza in, uh, in Greece, which is a left party, um, with Podemos yes. in Spain, which is a left party. Well, those parties are never going to... Uh, Cooperate with one another. They, they're 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 lumped into this kind of Eurosceptic populist thing. But it doesn't mean that somehow the Nazis are going to come take over the European Union. They're not. They're probably going to take around, I would say, between thirty-two and thirty-five percent wow. of the votes in the European uh, of the seats in the European Parliament. European Parliament is seven hundred five members, and people should know that the European Union. Um, is is sort of divided um, between uh, the European Parliament, which <clears throat> doesn't have a lot of power, <clears throat> actually has very little power, mm. um, and then the Troika, which is the International Monetary Fund, the European Central Bank, and the European Commission, which is a non-elected body representing all the countries. This Troika essentially runs the European Union, and that's part of the crisis. I mean, there really is a crisis of democracy in the European Union because it enforces a very rigid economic um, uh, model uh-huh. on all of the countries, uh-huh. um, and it, it has resulted in, you know, terrible austerity and um, a really a shift in wealth in Europe. So that's the kind of pot that's boiling. <laughs> Um, that is going, we're going to see what happens at the end of May, what comes out of these elections. 
If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we need all hands on deck to make that happen. Our guest today, Con Hallinan, we're talking about uh, European Union elections uh, coming up, and he says Europe confronts a cliff. Now, you're talking about the problems that have come about since the shift in the 1990s away from the center-left, from the socialist left, which was pretty standard. I mean, they had held government for a long time. And back when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, when we look at making changes in law, we think, well, if, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. What, what was broken in the 1990s that, that they had to fix it and come up with this, you know, <clears throat> sort of uh, unrestrained capitalism that uh, is plaguing them now? Well, I think what happened was that the center-left look at, at globalization, and um, they saw certain advantages in globalization. There was much more movement of people internationally. Um, there was a kind of international element to it, and the left has traditionally been a, an internationalist force, um, uh, it, as opposed to the kind of nationalism that the right has always claimed as their territory. And um, I think what happened was that people like Tony Blair and 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 there were people all over Europe mm -hmm. that did this, you know, looked at this globalization. They said, well, we can't stop it. Um, so what we'll do is we'll embrace it. Um, and what we'll try and do is to make it, uh, uh, you know, a little bit easier in terms of what its effect on, uh -huh. on jobs is at home, um, et cetera. And they essentially bought into the idea uh, that there really wasn't anything you could do about it. Mm. And so what they tried to do was to kind of modify its impact. Well, that's not how globalization works. And um, the fact is what it did was that the growth of inequality mm. um, is really the central issue here. And that's what the yellow vests are complaining about in in France and you know, all over Europe. I'll give you one example. In if you call back in two thousand and seven, the end of two thousand and seven, that was the big meltdown. Started with the United States um, real estate market, this giant bubble, yeah. financial speculation bubble, Ooh. sort of burst, and mm -hmm. and it started as a banking crisis in the United States, and it spread to Europe. In two thousand and seven, uh, Spanish workers accounted for. 63% of the national uh, wealth um, in, in 2007. In last year, in, in 2018, um, they accounted for 56% of the national wealth. So that means that they have lost close to 10%. And, uh, and that means 10% reduction in wages, um, in, in benefits. And what there has been a growth of is the gig economy. I mean, we, we've, we've all seen it. You know, I mean, we think of it as like Walmart and Uber and, you know, Lyft and all of this kind of thing. That's happened particularly in Europe. Almost all of the growth in jobs in Europe since the crisis ended or partly ended um, in 2011-2012 in Europe has been of these temporary jobs. And temporary jobs have generally very low or no benefits. Wages are lower. 
Um, and the work is uncertain. You, 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 sometimes it's a, a, a day job, you know, or mm-hmm. a couple of weeks or a couple of months. So there's no stability at all. That has produced an enormous uncertainty, particularly among young people in Europe, and, and, and a, a crisis, which is not only a financial crisis uh, in terms of people's being able to, you know, earn a living wage, um, but the fact is, is that most young people now, many young people in Europe, can no longer afford to leave home. They're living home with their parents, uh, and they don't get married, and they don't have kids. Um, so you, you, you're beginning to get this demographic chasm, which is opening, because of the position that the gig economy has put young people in Europe in. And it's a looming demographic crisis for the European Union. My goodness. Now, you know, traditional left politics, there was always working class solidarity. In union, there is strength. Uh, It sounds like... The traditional working class solidarity, I mean, here in America, there's no such thing as a working class. People don't think of themselves as working class. But, no, but, you know, we, don't, we don't believe in the term class. <laughs> All right, I got to get on with the show. You're right. But, they're, I mean, people believe they're, they're middle class, which is, you know, right. they, they used to be a middle class when I was a kid. Really, they did. Uh, but your, workers in Europe have long recognized that there is a class struggle, and they've been on one side or the other. Certainly the labor movement in, in England and many other places. It seems, according to your research, it seems that what used to be seen as far right is picking up many of the priorities which the left used to own. Is that because, you know, in this gig economy— People aren't connected with one another. There is the strength of the unions is gone. So how is it that the far right is picking up on many of the priorities which the left used to own? And, and they are. I mean, there, there's some very interesting stuff. You know, for instance, the league uh, and the five star movement in Italy. And five star movement was sort of looked at in this country as if it was left. It wasn't. It was always right. And certainly the leadership was right. Although a lot of the membership. Uh, was on the left, um, and they were fed up with the Socialist Party in uh, in um, Italy. Uh, in Italy, yeah. which you know basically had bailed out banks and applied austerity. I mean, it mm. went along with all of the strictures that the European Union had enforced on all of these countries that had big debts that came out of the crisis of two thousand and seven. And so, what happened is that. The right recognized that there was an opportunity here. So that the League and the Five Star Movement were fighting for things like guaranteed income for poor people, um, uh, it, um, increases in pensions as opposed to cuts in pensions. Now, are those serious things? I don't think they are. Uh, the moment that the EU sort of growled at the five-star movement in the league um, about their budget, the five-star in the league folded and went along with the EU. I think what's happened is that the right has recognized that there are some issues that they can take advantage of. Uh, Global warming. Now, you know, we think in in this country, the right doesn't think global warming exists. Right, right. right. But but in Europe, there, and particularly in France, but also in Italy, um, the, the right has seized onto global warming, say this is a crisis, uh, we have to do something about it. Um, they're, they're talking about economic uh, inequality um, in the society. Of course, their solution 
is, you know, to beat up on women, um, beat up on unions. Uh, and, okay. and uh, you know, when the Nazis were, running, were, were vying for power in, in, in the early 1930s in the Germany, um, you know, they had all sorts of revolutionary concepts. I, I, I was looked up, there's a, a medal that 1934 the Nazi Party put out um, called Day of Labor, and um, uh, and it was this picture of a, of a person, and below them was the Nazi eagle grasping the swastika, with and the eagle had its wings outspread, and on one wing it's holding a hammer, and the other wing it's holding a sickle. Mm. Well, I don't really think that the Nazi Party <laughs> was very much down for hammers and sickles. The first no. people that went into the concentration camps were communists yes. and trade unionists. So, um, I, you know, the, the fact that the right has grabbed hold of these issues, uh, it doesn't mean that they're serious in terms of pursuing them. What they are interested uh, in doing is they are interested in pursuing power. And uh, some of these people yeah. are pretty scary. They are indeed. And, you know, there's, it seems to me, a, a frankly surprising rise in nationalism around the world, in, in Europe and the United States. And I wonder how much, has there been a perception that, you know, here in, in the United States, I mean, many years ago, it was only the wacko fringe that said, get the UN out of the US and the US out of the UN. Well, now, <laughs> it, they, they seem to have taken power, you know, they, they don't trust the international black helicopter conspiracy, whatever the heck it is. I wonder if there's any of that in Europe. Do people feel like they need to fight for their sovereignty? Was their sovereignty threatened by the EU? Well, I think absolutely they feel that. And, and, and to a certain extent, this is the problem. The problem is that some of those fears are absolutely legitimate. I mean, the fact is that, you know, when Syriza, which is a left party, was elected to, to, to uh, run the Greek government, right. um, Syriza says, look, this policy of dealing with debt and economic crisis by applying austerity is crazy. Yes. It doesn't work. No. It never has worked. Didn't work in Latin America in the 1990s. <laughs> it's never worked. No. I mean, what it does is austerity shuts down economies, increases unemployment. It means that, that the taxes go down, so you have to apply uh, more cutbacks. And, you know, it's an endless kind of debt cycle. Mm. So Cyriza came in and they said, look, we want to pursue a different model. You know, we're, we're going to loosen the austerity things. Um, we're going to cut taxes on working people. We're going to increase taxes on, on wealthy people and corporations and things like that. And, and we're not going to essentially allow our, our economy and our people to be impoverished. And the EU said, if you don't do what, what we tell you to do, we're going to smash your entire economy. Right. <laughs> and they did. They closed down the banks. And Syriza had to back off. Right. So when people feel that, they, that there's a lack of democracy in the European Union, they're correct. If the European Parliament had the power to do so, they would have voted in favor of the Greek um, economic proposals, but they don't have any power. So that's a legitimate point. And what's happened is that the right has grabbed hold of that and used it as a sort of bludgeon against the EU, and what they mix it with is xenophobia uh -huh. and racism uh -huh. around immigration. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, <laughs> the irony here is that if Europe 
doesn't take migrants, within 30 years, the European system is going to collapse because they have a demographic crisis going on. The average, what you need for an industrial country is a 2.1 replacement rate. Mm. Unless you have a 2.1 replacement rate, what happens is the population goes down and the population gets older. You're seeing this all over the world. You're seeing it in China, you're seeing it in the United States, you're seeing it in Japan, etc. It's really a crisis in Europe. Italy, for instance, has a 1.31 replacement rate. Mm. Every three years, they lose in population about 70,000 people. There are places in Spain, there are 1,500 villages and towns in Spain which have been deserted. Wow. No one lives there anymore because the population is going down. That population is getting older, and there are fewer young people who are able to work and be taxed and thereby supply the money that's necessary to keep up health care, infrastructure repair, etc., etc. And I would point out, those young people are working for lower wages. So not only are 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 there fewer taxes, the taxes are tapping a reservoir which is smaller and smaller in terms of its monetary value. That crisis exists, and it exists all the way across the board um, in Europe. Hungary, in which the Orban government right. has sort of made its, its, its major policy against anti-immigration, um, uh, xenophobia, racism, right. all this kind of stuff. Fascism. They have such a crisis of labor that they had to pass a law, which the opponents called the slave law, which enforces Hungarians to work 400 hours, extra hours of overtime every single year, and to be deferred in terms of payment for it. Essentially, it is a slave law, all because of the demographics. And the solution to that, of course, is immigration. Yes. And the migrants are coming. Global warming is increasing, the, the, you know, the ocean is rising, sure. it's going to wipe out, uh, you know, river deltas all over the world. Heat is increasing, there are going to be parts of the planet which are just not going to be sure. habitable. Mm-hmm. The people in those areas are already on the move, and it's going to get significantly worse over the next 30 years. By 2050... As many as 3 billion people, somewhere between 2 and 3 billion people, are going to be deeply affected by, uh, by uh, climate change. Oh. Those people are not going to stand in place and die. No. They're going to go to places that will give them a chance to live. Well, that's us. And the question is, what do we do about it? <laughs> if you, you, you can try and shut the doors, right. um, but that's not going to work in the long run. Because if you shut the doors, you're going to have your own crisis. So what the left needs to do, yes, I think, in my opinion, yes. this is true with the United States, too. Uh, we were under 2.1 replacement rate in the United States. In, instead of going along with or remaining silent or even supporting some of the anti-immigration stuff, what we should do is to embrace migrants to recognize what they are. They're the salvation for industrial societies all over the world. And unless those people are bought in, integrated into the societies, 
we're going to have a situation of where people are clamoring to get in, and we are ourselves caught behind these walls in which we have a generally deteriorating infrastructure, you know, uh, quality of life, etc. Wow. I mean, the solution is, what well, the solution should be the left in general, which is internationalism. People take care of other people. We're all part of the same species. We're all part of the human race. We have to deal. We have to. We have to deal with one another. And uh, the left has not entirely come to right. grips with that. Um, although I'm happy to see that you know there are certainly sections of the left in the United States which are are, are beginning to understand that um, that you have to take that into account. Of course, racism plays a huge part in it. And, and you know, just I, I, when I was young, I used to think that racism was just a few people way down south. Boy, was I wrong. Oh, oh. No, and, yeah, no. Uh-uh. And, 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 you know, well, you know what they said? They said the North won the Civil War, the South won the, won the history. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you add to that, you know, in case I'm from California, you know, this long tradition of anti- uh, Asian exclusion right. acts, yeah. you know, all of those kinds of stuff. So that's... Um, they're there. And we're going to have to deal with it because, hey, three billion people, as many as three billion people are going to be on the march. What are we going to do? Well, and and what's so many bizarre things about that is how racism just blinds people to what you're talking about, how the economy needs it. And, again, where is the left? There's that old saying, workers of the world unite. You know, and that had that happened, I think, in the First World War when workers were made to fight one another. And, you know, if they had said, hey, we don't need to do this. <laughs> it's not about, you know, and, and even now, just because I, I'm getting the sense and tell me if I'm right, that, that the European left doesn't want to confront the growing racism. And that's why they're sort of shying away from the old workers of the world unite. Absolutely. You know, it, during the Italian election in which the, the, the League and the Five Star Movement won the election, the, uh, the, the center-left in, um, in Italy wouldn't touch immigration. Just left the field open to the right. Well, you know, you leave the field like that open to the right, and they... Yeah, of course. ...they become xenophobia and racism. And the failure of the left to confront what is a real problem and which they need to bite the bullet on, um, essentially turned that election over to the League and to the Five Star Movement, which is definitely not in the interest of the vast majority of Italians. <laughs> I would think not, but they've, you know, they, there is racism there. I've, I've seen it, and uh, oh, yeah. a lot of the... Uh, <laughs> it's funny, when, when you're an empire, the former colonies come back to the center of the power. Oh, yes. Hello. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, you know, it, 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 Italy's a perfect example. They're complaining about all these people coming from Libya. Well, you know, the headquarters for the NATO attack on, on Gaddafi in Libya was southern Italy. No, no kidding. Yeah, so the mills of God grind slowly, but they grind most exceedingly <laughs> fine. <laughs> They do. I never expected to hear that quote from you. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is Con Helen and columnist for Foreign Policy in Focus. We're talking about 
what the heck is going on in Europe? There's a big election coming up, and he's suggesting that they may be confronting a cliff. Now, in France, there's been a a long tradition of a robust left, a real left in France. They love to get out in the streets and protest. It's it's like a a national uh, pastime. And there's been a, a dependable network of social services, a solid safety net for a long time. Yet now, as you mentioned, the yellow vests seem to have a great deal of momentum. Are they left, right, some combination thereof? And how much of a real threat to the centrist neoliberal government of Macron are they? What is the direction of French politics? You know, I think when you're looking at the yellow vests, uh, I, I think of it as very, very similar to the Brexit situation. One of the things that happened during the 1990s and, uh, and uh, the early part of the 21st century was that globalism that built up um, population centers. So the places like London um, and and the major cities uh, in, in Britain, and two of France and everything like that, um, became centers of international finance. Um, they had a sort of dynamic economies, etc. And what happened was that the outlying areas, and not just necessarily rural, I'm talking about also, we would call suburban, they don't really use that term uh-huh. um, in Europe very much. Um, those areas were just ignored. They were hollowed out. Um, something like, uh, you know, 1,500 libraries in local cities in Britain have been shut down. Oh. Um, Child care centers. You know, all, essentially what happened was that people were just ignored. And the right and the left was guilty, equally guilty. Um, in doing this. And what Brexit is and what the, what the yellow vests are is that they're this reaction to the fact that huge sections of the population have just been marginalized as a result of globalization. You know, the, the yellow vests are a perfect example. Uh, Macron comes in, and uh, president of France, he, he comes in, and he, he does two things. He, uh, he cuts the wealth tax cuts the sure. tax on the wealthy, uh-huh. and he adds a tax on uh, on gasoline, on diesel, yeah. um, and gasoline um, in order to raise money to control global warming. Okay, so you're a person who's living on the outskirts of Paris, or maybe in some little village town outside of Paris. Um, you don't have any public transportation because public transportation has been greatly reduced, or the money has gone in to bullet trains and fast trains that go from major population center to major population center. So what's happened to you is your wages have gone down, your jobs have become more unstable, and now someone just put a tax on gas, and you have no choice but to drive into work because you can't get there sure. on public transport. So the effect of that was that it enraged people what a surprise. in the suburbs and in the countryside. Yes. And that's really the base of the yellow vest, and it was very much the base of the Brexit vote. There, are they a threat? Well, what the recent polls show, actually, is that there's been a drop-off in support for the yellow vest. Uh, last figures I saw, originally they had... Something like fifty-eight percent of the French public supported the yellow vest, or even mm-hmm. higher. Mm-hmm. Um, it now that's down to about um, 
uh, 29%, 30%. Um, Macron's uh, polls, uh, which sort of dropped down to almost zero, are now back up to around 25 or 26%, which is what he received um, support for in the um, first round of the French elections. I don't think that the Yellow Vest per se as an organization are a threat, mainly because they don't have an organization. Yeah. They don't have spokespeople. They don't have leaders. They, uh, they, they don't really have a set of demands. Um, it's much more a... a an expression of sort of rage, um, mm. of frustration. Mm-hmm. But the sentiment that they're feeling is is absolutely real, and it, it is in Britain as well. Sure, and the yeah. question is, can the left do something about that? That's, it's not just yeah. a question of tapping into it to draw from its power, but can they realize what the effect of globalization has been and to do something about it. Can they step away from this idea that if you don't tax the wealthy, then they will take their money and build up the economy and get everybody jobs? It's never happened. Trickle down. And it's not happening in France now. It didn't happen in the United States. Huge tax cut. That when Trump came in, yeah. that wasn't plowed back into the <laughs> into investment. Yeah, the economy went up for a short period of time; it always does by a, uh, a tax increase. And now we're in trouble again. Yeah. Um, only debts are vastly greater than they were before. So the question is: is whether or not the left is able right. to break away from that sort of accommodation uh-huh. uh, to capital that uh-huh. they went through in the 1990s. I don't know. Um, well, yeah, I, would think- I think in terms of, of, of Europe, the two places in which I think you've seen an effort to do that and that there's been a positive response yeah. um, is in Portugal, where what happened was that the Socialist Party, which has been very traditional Socialist Party, very similar to Spain and and. Blair um, Labor and all this kind of stuff went along with austerity, you know, basically accommodated itself to the uh, strictures of the European Union. They broke away from that and they formed a uh, uh, an alliance with two left parties, the mm-hmm. Green Communist Alliance and the Left Bloc. And what they did was, when they got into power, um, they don't all agree with one another. Um, they don't agree on NATO. They don't agree on repaying the debt, all this kind of stuff. But <clears throat> they did agree that they could roll back some of the austerity measures. They could make Portugal a little bit better place to live. Um, and they could take care of people better. Well, the result is is that they've done extremely well in local elections. And, you know, they've solidified their support in the country. The last time that Labour was in an election, uh, that Labour in, in Britain... Yeah. Uh, Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, is the yeah. leader of the Labour Party, broke away from the kind of Blair wing yes. of the Labour Party, um, and and talked about instituting a a, a solid social democratic mm-hmm. um, set of, of of policies. I mean, there's nothing particularly radical about it, um, but it was a good, solid left social democratic approach. And the result was that they. You know, they they vastly increased their seats in the parliament, and they denied the conservatives um, a majority in the parliament. 
And it seems to me that that's where you get the response. Example, if you take a look at the last set of German state elections, everybody was worried that the um, um, that the, the, the German right yeah. um, was going to um, uh, was going to do extremely well in these state elections. They didn't. They did very poorly. Oh. Um, they were down around ten, twelve percent. What happened was that even though they ran the right, pounded away. Um, uh, the alternative for Germany pounded away on immigrants. The Greens are the people who did well. Yeah. And the Greens actually have a much more sensible approach to immigration. In fact, it's a much, much more sensible approach than the German Social Democrats. Yeah. And so I think that if, I don't think that anti immigration is an automatic winner in terms of voters. What the polls show going into the oh, European parliamentary elections is that immigration is the number one concern for Europeans, but just, only by a single percentage point, followed by unemployment and the economy. Interesting. Now, I think that if left parties took a sensible approach on immigration, talked to people about the fact we have a demographic crisis, and we have to resolve it, and we have to guarantee that old people are not going to die unhealthy in the dark by themselves. Um, and also, this is what we can do in terms this of making your life right. easier. Right. I think you, what you will see is you will see people go back to the left. But at this point, they don't trust the Social Democrats. No. They don't trust the center-left anymore, and they have no reason to do so. Yeah, they, they held power for a really long time and became so institutional that left, I don't know, it, it seemed to, uh, I don't really know, I'm over on this side of the Atlantic, but I, I got the impression that it wasn't particularly left. And now I would think there's a tremendous opportunity to pick up on these things. And I wonder about... Exactly. About Spain, for example. They've had a couple of major shocks lately. One is the Catalan independence movement, and then the reaction to that, it seemed like that served to revive the old Francoist, nationalist, fascist right. Uh, is there a left in Spain? What the heck is going on there? Yeah, boy, Spain is a thing. By the way, people should pay attention to Spain because there's um, an election at the end of April, a general election um, in Spain at this point. It's very unclear what's going to come out of that election. The polls are just all over the place. Um, and they have not been very effective in the past in predicting what's going to happen. The situation in Spain is, Spain has traditionally been dominated by two forces, um, the Socialist Party um, and the Popular Party. The Popular Party is a right-wing party that came out of um, Franco. It, it 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 wasn't it it, it it Franco. It isn't his party. Um, the Phalange was his party, no. um, but it, its roots are essentially uh, okay. Francoist. Uh -huh. And then the Socialist Party um, and those two parties essentially dominated uh, uh, Spanish politics from the end of Franco. So nineteen, you know, mid nineteen seventies. And uh, and they've sort of taken turns back and forth, um, you know, in power, um, et cetera. What you have right now is a kind of an atomization of that process. It started with a, a group called Podemos, yes, um, that started in Barcelona, 
um, in Catalonia and uh, and Madrid, and it came out of these popular protests in 2011 around the austerity regime um, that the Spanish were suffering under, and boy, it was a was a fierce austerity regime. Yeah. And Podemos came out of that agitation in the major kind of cities and it it did extremely well um and it uh and it's a major force in the uh, spanish parliament today there's another party that came out of there called the citizens army party out of catalonia and they're anti um independence for catalonia you're absolutely right that the catalan situation has um raised up the specter of nationalism right. in Spain mm-hmm. um, in a way that would have very much pleased Francisco uh, Franco. Um, Castilianism is the way yeah. that it's generally talked about in uh-huh. Spain. Uh-huh. And Barcelona is in, in this enormous kind of upheaval that's been going on around uh, the vote for independence, um, etc., there isn't finally this new group that appeared called Vox. Yes. Um, Vox actually is, it's a Francoist party. I mean, they're, they're, oh, yeah. they're quite clear that they're really a fascist party. Yeah. Um, they, they come out of the right wing of the popular party. So going into this election, you've got this citizen party, um, which is sort of middle right, mm-hmm. um, center right. You have the Popular Party, which is right. You have the Vox Party, which is extreme right. You have the Socialist Party, which is sort of center, center left. Mm-hmm. And then you have Podemos, which is left. Besides that, you have regional parties. You have the Basque parties, mm-hmm. and you have the Catalan parties. Um, and so it's this incredibly atomized um, landscape here. What is going to happen, I don't know. Right. Uh, I think what's going to happen, my worry is that the Popular Party and the Citizens Party and Vox Uh-oh. will get enough votes that they can form a government. Yikes. Well, that would be Ooh. a disaster um, for Spain. The current government now yes. is a government that is a minority government. That is, the socialists are in charge of it, but they're a minority group uh-huh. in the parliament. They rely on the support of Podemos, and they rely on the support of the Basque parties mm. and of the Catalan parties. Well, the socialists sort of dropped the ball on Catalonia, um, and they lost support from the Catalan party, so there's now we're going into a general election. How that plays out is not clear. I mean, I, I find it disturbing how easy it is to stir up you know the the hornets of nationalism oh, uh, in in Spain, and and we may end up having a right wing government out of this. And if we do have a right wing government, it would be a more of a right wing government than even the domination of the Popular Party beforehand. Yes. Podemos has gone down in the polls yeah. because it's split between several factions, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, so it's not clear how well they're going to do. The general feeling is that they're probably going to lose um, some seats in the um, <clears throat> in the parliament. So you know, as as much as I would like to say, you know, Podemos had this real opportunity yeah. 
to to kind of make a difference. Um, I, I think they sort of fell out uh, among themselves over what they were and what they were doing, and and they've ended up not so much losing support, but um, there's a poll that indicates that young people are are just not going to bother to vote in the no, next election. No. So no. in a sense, what they're doing is that they're 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 sort of dropping out of the election, and and young people in in Spain are almost all almost generally on the left. So that's going to hurt the left. But again, I one thing I learned is two things you don't predict. You don't predict the outcome of Spanish elections. You don't predict the outcome of British elections. Um, no. And polls in both of those countries have been so wrong and in the I, past several years that. Uh, you might as well use a crystal ball or yeah. tea leaves to come up with what's going to finally happen. And you're right, I think, about, you know, the opportunity for the left. You know, the people, the, the Syriza party and others under the austerity felt like, hey, we were occupied by Germany once before. We don't like it. And that's kind of the center of power, economic power in Europe. And this is an opportunity. And I'm also reminded of another quote from uh, Abby Hoffman, who, who remarked that the relationship between the right and the left is perfect. The right is sadistic. The left is masochistic. We sort of... <laughs> that's, not, that's Abby for you. Oh, I know. It, it kind of <laughs> te- tears ourselves apart. And, you know, I would think, again, this is an opportunity for the left, but pff, do they rise to an opportunity? Uh, sometimes. I did want to ask sometimes. about... And, 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 you know, I, I don't know, Bert. I mean, this the... the, uh, the Spanish elections, I've covered Spain pretty carefully over the past uh, several oh, years and, and watched yeah. the growth of Podemos and, and what's happened in the parliament um, and things. And, um, you know, uh, the only thing I think that we do know, maybe, in the long run, is that uh, nationalism, um, xenophobia, racism, yeah. ends up destroying societies. Mm. It doesn't make them stronger. So in the long run, those are historical dead ends. The problem is, of course, that (laughs) they can produce a tremendous amount of pain, you know, before people come to the realization that they aren't an answer to their problems. Well, that happened here in the United States. Speaking of which, in France, the granddaughter of Jean-Marie Le Pen, who is anti-Semitic right-wing founder of the National Front, she is calling for... Uh, Europe to be a, quote, traditional Christian community, end of quote. And I read recently that Steve Bannon, boo hiss, and the far right of American uh, uh, religious political extremists are very much involved with bringing about Le Pen's dark vision. These American groups apparently have thus far invested about $50 million of what's been called dark money into European politics. Some 40 members of the Euro Parliament have demanded action to, pre- to protect uh, European democracy against outside nefarious uh, influences. What is known about this activity and how... Well, Bannon started off very early, I mean, uh, making... Uh alliances with the League and the Alternative for Germany and uh, Le Pen organization, which used to be called the National Front and right. is now called the National Rally. Oh, um, nice. and, uh, and, and also uh, Viktor Orban in, in Hungary. And <clears throat> Bannon's idea was that 
that you could form this alliance of all of these right-wing organizations. And in fact, yesterday, the League announced that um, it was pulling together um, an electoral coalition, which will function as a coalition in the European uh, Parliament. It doesn't have that many members at this point. It's got the Alliance for for uh, Germany. It's got um, I- Italy, uh, the, the League. Um, it, it has the Finnish, the true Finn uh, party. Yeah. Viktor Orban in Hungary hasn't touched it. I don't know where this is going to go, but certainly um, Bannon uh, has been pushing this all the way along, and he's looking for some kind of you know worldwide coalition uh-huh. of, of right-wing parties. Money has flowed in. There's no question that money has flowed in. One thing about European elections is it's harder to influence European elections uh, with money than ah, it is uh, American in, uh, in American politics because for two reasons. Uh, one, because there are pretty strict rules uh, in, in terms of finance um, for money that comes in. in other words, well, I was you, wondering. Yeah. No, it's not like you have in 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 the United States where you know you essentially the. Koch brothers can, you know, pour sure. billions of dollars into elections and by elections. It's harder to do that in Europe. It's not that, you, that it doesn't make an effect. It's just a little harder to do um, in Europe. But that uh, dark money that's coming in, and the reason why it's dark money is because it can't be above board. Uh-huh. That's a violation of the European Union uh-huh. election rules that's and right. a violation of most of the election rules of European countries. So we don't know how much money is involved. But we do know that there certainly is an effort to to encourage this growth of the of the right wing in uh in in Europe. Now as I pointed out, I think it would be a mistake for people to see somehow as the right as completely ascendant in Europe. As I say the last set of German elections, uh the right uh took a beating um and uh and i i think that that uh, there's the, you have to be a little careful about panicking at this point because you know th- at this point there are people who have said you know look we have to have a united front and so you know don't raise questions about austerity and don't raise questions about uh, democracy in the european idea. union because you know you're 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 breaking up the united front well no. Bad idea. If you want to defeat the right, you have to defeat the right on the basis of principled political and economic proposals. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think that, again, I think people, you know, the press looks at this and they make this into, you know, the right is coming, the right is coming, the yeah. right is coming. The right is coming. Um, but it's not all powerful. And the solution is not necessarily to pull the wagons in a circle. The solution is to look at what are the conditions that were created by a combination of the center-left, the center, and the center-right that made it possible for the right to rise. That's what we need to be looking at. Um, And so my worry is is that people are going to get sort of panicked into, you know, uh, support anybody as long Uh as it's not... The right. Uh, we cannot support policies which end up you know, creating the conditions under which the right grows. Mm, for sure. It has to be taken on somehow with something clear that people can get that is better for them. Why should Americans care about this stuff? We're pretty parochial. 
Well, for one thing, you know, keep in mind, <clears throat> when you're talking about economics, uh, if you pull the whole European Union together, that's the largest economy on the planet. It's bigger than the United States and China. Number one is the EU, number two is the United States, number three is China. So what happens in the EU is going to have an impact economically all the way across yeah. um, the globe. I think the other side of it is is that um, people like Steve Bannon are correct. I mean, there are these alliances between um, the uh, right in the United States, the alt-right, you know, yeah. Bannon's people, etc., um, and the right in places like Europe, and, and also in other areas of, of the world. Um, and so people need to realize um, that this is one, this is one world. Um, the solutions to the crises that we now face, and the most immediate and existential crisis is climate change, um, it are going to have to be solved by worldwide cooperation. Well, the right's not going to produce that. The right's going to produce nationalism. Right. The left and the, and the center-left have to produce that. And if, if we don't, um, you know, we're going to make large portions of this planet uninhabitable. Um, and if you think we've got a problem with immigration now, just wait 30 years. No, oh, my goodness. And, you know, I, I'm reminded in 2004, John Kerry didn't really have much of a platform. He was just not Bush. And now people are saying, oh, just not Trump. Anybody but Trump, not Trump. Uh, hello, you got to have a program. you got to connect with that's people. That's right. And I hope that's going on in Europe. It sounds like maybe it is. It is in places. But, it, you know, it's like the United States. There, uh, there are a lot of people that, you know, uh, Clinton was a perfect example, yeah. you know, who sort of drank the Kool-Aid <laughs> of, of neoliberalism. Yes. And, and, you know, they... They saw liberal as open societies, democracy, and except most people have experienced neoliberalism as austerity, yes. gig economy, lowered uh, uh, wages, worse working conditions, and their children are going to be less well off than their yeah. than their parents. That's yeah. their view of liberal. So when people like Viktor Orban talk about anti-liberalism or or, or or unliberal, you know, capitalism. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about getting rid of that stuff, and that's why people buy it. And yep. and that's why it is absolutely critical that that people not give in to this idea of, um, you know, anybody but Trump. Right. Yes, I agree, anybody but Trump. I will vote whoever runs against Trump. Right. I will vote for that person. But... If you're going to deal with the phenomena that Trump represents, you're going to have to face up to the fact that liberals and the Democrats and socialist parties in Europe and everything have helped create the conditions yep. for things like Brexit, for things like the League, for things like Alternative for Germany, and for Donald Trump. That's what we have to confront. And we have to really deal with the underlying issues, which, of course, we hardly ever do. If people want to read more of your stuff, and I'm sure we'll get you back on the show again, Foreign Policy and Focus is the uh, website, correct? FPIF.org? Right. right. All right. Well, thank you so much. Very, very informative. Thanks oh, Bert, it's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Agreed. I was on, you to stay. I was on.